Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Rob O'Hare. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Beachhead 2, which was chosen as this episode's game by Patreon supporters like Garrett Allier, John Treholt, and Joshua Eckroth. If you would like to help pick the next episode or just support my podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara and sign up today. Beachhead 2 was published for the Commodore 64 in 1985 by Access Software. It is a game for one or two players that uses joystick controls. Now, Bruce Carver of Access Software was a mechanical engineer who worked in building construction. He bought a Commodore 64 in 1982. He learned machine language programming through a series of books and released his first program, which was called Sprite Master 64. Uh, it was a utility that allowed people to make multicolored sprites on the Commodore 64. And if you're curious as to what Bruce Carver looks like, he and his kids are featured on the cover of Sprite Master 64. Bruce teamed up with a friend of his, Chris Jones, and both of them had a love of World War II movies, and together they created Beachhead, the original game, which was the predecessor of Beachhead 2. Bruce and his buddy Chris Jones formed Access Software in 1983. Uh, Chris Jones was the CFO and Bruce Carver was the president. And eventually they brought on Bruce's brother, Roger Carver, as another programmer. And the three of them created all of the software that was released by Access Software. Access Software was formed in 1983 by Bruce and Chris Jones. Chris Jones was the CFO. Bruce Carver was the president and lead programmer. And it just so happens that the two of them had also crossed paths with Jeff Brown. Now, Jeff Brown had just formed a new company called U.S. Gold. And what U.S. Gold's plans were, were to import uh, United States released games or, or games released in the U.S. and port them over to other regions, uh, uh, specifically in the U.K. And, and PAL regions. So that became a business partnership that benefited both sides. Access Software was uh, released several programs for the Commodore 64 and other computers. They were ultimately purchased by Microsoft in 1998 and then were eventually sold to Take-Two Entertainment, which closed down in 2006. So that is the complete lineage of Access Software. Now, Access, uh, they're 
other than the Sprite Maker 64 utility that I mentioned, their biggest early releases included Beachhead 1 and the sequel we'll be talking about today, Beachhead 2. They released Echelon, the uh, space program. We had Sentinel. They released Raid Over Moscow, which was another uh, war-inspired title. And then they moved into the world of sports games. They released 10th Frame Bowling, which is one of my favorite bowling games. Games for the Commodore 64. They also released World Class Leaderboard Golf, which was a seminal golf title, and that eventually led to another uh, golf program released by Access called Lynx Golf, which you may have heard of. They also released a game called Crime Wave, which was a very popular title uh, on the systems. Now, another partnership that was formed uh, early on in Access was a partnership with a program called Electronic Speech Systems, ESS. They were the leader in the early era of Commodore 64 speech synthesis. Uh, they did the voices that appear in Impossible Mission, so you may recognize that, and they did the voices that appear in Beachhead 2. Beachhead 2 is the sequel to the original Beachhead, which was released two years prior in 1983 by Access. Beachhead 2, again, was released in 1985. Back in the original game, players controlled the Allied forces in an attempt to overthrow an evil dictator. In Beachhead 2, the evil dictator is now known as the Dragon, and players can play as either the Allied forces or as Dragon, the evil dictator. And the most fun is found in in two-player mode in which you and a friend go head-to-head -head and battle one another. The box of Beachhead 2 lets you know right away that you are jumping back into the world of World War II era games. We've got the title Beachhead 2 stenciled across the top. It looks like the military style stenciling that you uh, would associate with this genre of game. There are military stars on the outsides of the words Beachhead 2, and underneath it says The Dictator Strikes Back. That was a very common phrase for sequels, uh, especially after The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, it also says Two-Player Action Game. This was an important selling point for Beachhead 2 because the original Beachhead uh, was a one-player game or at least one player at a time. So Beachhead 2 allows two people to play at the same time against one another. Uh, there's also this great action artwork. Um, there's always something about artwork... Um, that's not, you know, the actual pictures from the game, but that has been uh, created. And that's what we have here. And you see these forces attacking a fortress. There are planes flying in, there are explosions, there are missiles flying and bullets flying. It is very action-packed and it is very exciting looking. It wants, uh, it makes you want to play this game. Uh, for some reason, it feels very inspired by G.I. Joe cartoons of the time. It looks like a page right out of a G.I. Joe comic book. The back of the box gives us more information about the game. We have some verbiage at the top, which I will read. And it says, victory at hand. The fortress destroyed the enemy on the run. 
Then a brilliant suicide air attack leaves the allied fleet in a heap of mangled metal at the bottom of the harbor. No long do you hold the advantage. All that's left of your forces is a squadron of helicopters and several platoons of battle-weary infantry. From the mountains nearby, the dictator, known only as the dragon, is watching and waiting to attack. Feeling the moment is right, he issues the following demand. Your forces are surrounded and your position is futile. Surrender now or the prisoners will suffer for your stubbornness. <laughs> I like that the dictator would say stubbornness. The odds are totally against you, but your decision is immediate. Allied forces are poised to process inland to rescue their comrades and capture the dragon once and for all. But whose final battle will it be? His or yours? Beachhead 2 is a true head-to-head -head two player multi-sequence game that allows you to play either with a friend or against the computer. It features voice simulation to add to the excitement of battle and stunning high-resolution three-dimensional graphics. Um, so a couple of things uh, to take away from this. The phrase head-to-head -head is in all capitals and quotation marks, and this is uh, definitely a big selling point at the time. You know, the Commodore 64, one of its selling points is that it had two built-in joystick ports. You could connect two joysticks right out of the box, but if a game didn't support two players, then that wasn't a useful feature. So games like this that advertised head-to-head -head two player action uh, really sold that idea that you could play this game with a friend. Also, it has the term multi-sequence game, which tells me today we would call that a series of mini games. <laughs> but at the time, this is a multi-sequence game. Now, this was also important, uh, not just as a, a play strategy, but also because as we spoke uh, about earlier, this game was going to be ported over to the UK by US Gold. And in the UK, the data set or cassette tapes were much more prevalent than floppy disk drives, which was the primary source of data usage, storage, loading uh, in the United States. So by making it a, quote, multi-sequence game, that allowed data set owners to load a level, play that level, and then load the next level into memory, and so on and so forth. So by designing the game in this way, it made it very convenient to be converted over to data set as well as uh, working from a floppy disk as well. Now, the manual gives us a little bit more background information. Uh, it says at the very beginning, please read thoroughly before playing. But then it gives us all this, this backstory <laughs> about the characters, um, which in reality in the game, it doesn't matter who the characters are. But this is another way that old 8-bit games really drew you in and gave you value for purchasing the game. So there's a lot of detail about the game that's only in the manual. Could you play the game without the manual? Sure. It's it's easily playable without uh, knowing all this backstory. But by reading this, you really do build this imagery and the story in your mind that makes the game seem a little bit more interesting. Uh, but on the first page, we have this little uh, cutout section that says July 1947. 
Beachhead 2 is a true head-to-head two-player multi-sequence game that allows you to play against another person or the computer. You can choose to play either of the following characters. Player 1, the Allied Commander, J.P. Stryker. (laughs) And here's J.P. Stryker's profile. Youngest man ever to reach rank of Chief Commander. Fought courageously during World War II and was awarded the Medal of Honor for Heroism quickly rose through the ranks during the war and gained respect and admiration from his colleagues for his integrity and leadership abilities. Player two, the dictator known as quote, the dragon. Here's the dragon's profile. Evil, bloodthirsty, power crazed maniac. Fought savagely against the Allies during World War II in the Pacific, disappeared and formed his own renegade army after the war. The dragon demands and gets blind obedience from his followers who worship him as a demigod. He is a brilliant military tactician? Yeah, tactician, who has been trapped and outnumbered in battle many times but has managed to turn the tables on his opponents through cunning and ruthlessness. His current objective is to obliterate the forces that gave his army a stinging defeat and destroyed his fortress. So that's the setup for the game. We have the allies versus uh, the evil dictator, but we also have personified those people. So we're not just the allies now we are J.P. Stryker, <laughs> World War II hero and winner of the Medal of Honor. And on the other side, we're not just, quote, the bad guys. We are now the dictator's army, and specifically, you can play as the dragon. Now, I don't know why um, the dictator needed a name or why his name is the dragon, but, but there we go. So after loading the game, uh, we get this title screen. We get some background music. Uh, I believe it's the, the Marines uh, theme, theme song, I believe. Uh, we have Beachhead 2, The Dictator Strikes Back. We've got this helicopter, which is blue. We also have some options that we can hit here. We have S uh, for the score, T for the top 10 high scores, uh, D will launch a demo and show you different levels of the game where it will play by itself. There's also a very strange uh, thing, a feature that I've not seen in many games, and it says filter plus or minus. Now, filter, according to the manual, allows you to adjust the sound filters as they are applied to the game. Now, this is interesting, especially in 1985, because as we know, the Commodore 64 SID chip changed between the Commodore 64 and some uh, of the other later systems like the 64C. There were different models of the SID chip and uh, things like digitized speech either didn't play or sometimes samples played differently or things played at different speeds, depending on if it was uh, on the US or, uh, you know, NTSC versus PAL. But that was just kind of a difference people lived with. Uh, if, If your game didn't play digitized speech on your 128 or something, and it did on the Commodore 64, well, you were just out of luck. So it's very interesting that they've added this feature to allow you to mess around with the sound filter and get slightly different sounds. That's uh, not a feature that I've seen in very many, I can't hardly think of any actual game 
that allowed you to do that. So that's very interesting. Um, we also have function keys to select levels, uh, which is one, two, or three, and uh, then you have to select whether you want to play as one or two players. Now, the copy of this game that I was playing was a copy uh, that was designed to run for the data set. So I I don't seem to remember uh, on the original Beachhead 2, but I could be wrong, uh, of being able to select different levels and things like, I think you can, but, uh, only like in the training mode or something like that, or in the practice mode, you could select uh, different levels, but on the data set one, I believe you could just select any level at a time. It doesn't really matter because uh, when you play the full game, you will go through all four levels. There are different, four different scenes and you will play them, uh, in order. So let's get into the different scenes that make up beachhead Two. the first one is called Attack. I have so many fun memories of playing Attack. Attack is uh, a really fun minigame that has multiple little stages. So in the uh, in the minigame Attack, or in the first scene, we'll call it number one scene, Attack, uh, the Allied forces arrive from helicopter, and they are attacking the Dictator's Fortress, which is down at the bottom. So we're... We're, we can talk about allies versus a dictator. Sometimes I may say good guys versus bad guys, but in general, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so the, what the uh, allies have to do at first is control a helicopter. And what you'll see on the screen is three uh, different layers uh, that are spaced out by walls. And so you're going to do different things on each of these walls. So at the beginning of the level, you use the helicopter and you have to drop your men by parachute. And when they land, they will run to hide behind the wall that they were closest to when they were dropped. Um, you want to, one of the things that the, it says in the instructions is that you need to evenly disperse the man because only so many men can hide behind the four sections of wall, which are across uh, the top of the screen. Now, the next part of the level, once you have dropped all the men from the helicopter, you have to pick and control uh, which wall, from which wall a guy will climb over the wall and try to run down to the next set of walls. So you've got to move all those men that have that have uh, dropped out of the helicopter. I believe it's 32. I think it's 8, 8, 8, and 8 for the sections of wall. But you've got to move all your soldiers down from the top section of wall to the second section of wall. This is easier said than done because the dictator, the bad guys at the bottom, have a turret mounted machine gun and he will be trying to shoot your soldiers as they hop over uh, the wall and make it down to the next section of wall. The soldiers at this point cannot fire their guns. They can't do anything. Um, they're just literally trying to advance to the next section of walls. Now there is a third uh, section of wall down at the bottom, which now you've moved all your soldiers down to that point. And the soldiers on that point can do one of three things. Number one, you can pick a soldier and have him try to run to the bottom of the screen, which that's the ultimate goal because however many soldiers you get uh, moved down is is um, uh, going to come into play later in the game. 
The second thing you could do is you can move soldiers, and, and I should mention that there is a, uh, at this point, there are only two sections of wall, one on the left, one on the right. And so you can move a soldier from the left to the right. So he will just run, run out from behind the wall and run over to the other wall, which is kind of a good diversion for the machine gun. But the third thing you could do is you could send one of the soldiers out right into the middle, right in the line of fire and throw a grenade up in the air. And if the grenade goes all the way up, it will come all the way down. And if you launched it in the right area, you can blow up the machine gun turret, which is worth points and stops the machine gun from firing for five or 10 seconds, maybe five seconds until a new uh, turret is raised into position. So if you can blow that up, that's a good time where you can get your soldiers to run over that last wall and run down to escape the bottom of the screen. So again, in this level, the good guys have to drop soldiers from the helicopter to the first set of walls. They have to move the soldiers from the first set to the second set of walls. Uh, and then on the bottom wall, you either have to get your soldiers one at a time to run down to freedom or throw grenades and try to blow up the machine gun turret. That is everything that the good guys are doing. The bad guys have one thing that they could do on this level, which is fire that machine gun turret. They can fire it at soldiers anywhere on the screen at any time if they're not, uh, or if they're exposed, if they're not hiding behind the wall. The machine gun turret moves more quickly when you're not firing, but there is no uh, aiming what's that called a reticule on the screen uh, at the time whenever you're shooting. So the only way to know where your bullets are going is to fire bullets. <laughs> so if you're trying to just like lay down a line of bullet fire, um, your turret will turn very slowly and the guys will outrun you. If you stop firing, you can move your turret more quickly, but then you don't know exactly where your shots are going to come out when you press the fire button. So, uh, I, I think this level is geared, I don't know, it's hard to say, because no, if you're playing one player, it seems like the computer has the advantage on either side. So, uh, But it is a fun level. It's a fun mini game. Uh, and there is one additional surprise to this level, which is this is where you will begin to hear the digitized speech. Um, you will hear... The soldiers say, follow me, men, when they leap over the wall. Sometimes you'll hear them shout medic or I'm hit when they get shot. You'll also hear random yelling. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a very exciting way to start the game. There are some sound components of this level that I don't love. Uh, when the helicopter is on the screen, it just makes a helicopter sound, which is loud and uh over it's overbearing it, it is louder than anything else you also have the constant sound of the machine gun turret firing the entire time so it's a very loud and busy kind of level but you know what i think that's how war is too <laughs> so i will um i will cut him some slack once all the soldiers have moved to the bottom. And by the way, if you get no soldiers to the bottom, then the game's over. You have to at least get one soldier to the bottom of the screen or you don't get to continue. But assuming you do get one, you move to the second scene, which is called Rescue. Now, Rescue uh, is a very entertaining and strange minigame. It is fun. Uh, 
the way that I would explain this game is it's almost like the arcade game Crossbow. If you remember the game Crossbow, in which you had what I would call NPCs, you have passive characters moving that you can't control from the left-hand side of the screen to the right-hand side of the screen. And that's what happens in this game. Uh, And things are trying to kill those characters and then you have to protect those characters by shooting uh, or, or um, somehow managing the dangers that could possibly kill those characters. So those characters in this level are uh, the hostages that were being held by Dragon the Dictator. And they are trying to escape from the left-hand side of the screen to freedom, which is on the right-hand side of the screen. And they are walking right through the Dictator's camp. So let's talk. Uh, there are four major types of uh, attacks that the dictator. Uh, well, no, no, no. <laughs> this gets a little complicated here. Um, yes. So the dictator is going to try to launch four different things to kill your hostages, which um, the hostages, again, cannot be controlled. They show up from the left hand side one at a time. And we'll walk all the way across to the right-hand side of the screen. Uh, and if they make it safely, then the next one will come out. If they don't, if they die, uh, then another one will come out as well until you run out of people. And so, again, uh, the goal of this is to get at least one guy <laughs> from the left-hand side to the right. Otherwise, uh, you're game in. So let's talk about the dangers that the hostages can face. Number one, there is a – I'm going to mention this one last, actually. Number one. Uh, there is a tank that can launch from the right-hand side of the screen and will run over your hostage. The tank doesn't fire anything. It is just on a (laughs) collision course with your hostage. And if he gets to your hostage, he will run your guy over, and that's the end of that. But the tank always comes to the right-hand side of the screen. From the left-hand side of the screen is a pickup truck with a machine gun that fires completely vertically. So it comes up from the bottom of the screen. It drives out from the left-hand side, shooting machine guns straight up into the air and will eventually cross paths with your hostage. So you would have to deal with uh, the truck before it reaches the hostage. The number three uh, threat is a guy that's kind of underground and he can move left to right. He's on the same plane as your hostage and there's a little trap door and that trap door can open and he can lay out a landmine. So he opens this trap door, puts a landmine there. And if your hostage gets to the landmine, he will blow up. (laughs) This sounds like there's a lot going on and I'm telling you, there's a lot going on. The fourth and final danger, which is probably the least technical of all the assault things, but also the most entertaining to me is there is a guy on the wall above who will throw down a boulder. So he will just basically, I mean, think about world war two. You've got tanks, you've got guns, uh, a turret, you've got a truck with a machine gun, you've got landmines. Uh, and the last line of defense is a guy on the wall with a boulder who just throws rocks and tries to hit your people in the head. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's so funny, but, um, uh, but, but that's, that's what's happening. So, uh, let's talk about, what the good guys do versus what the bad guys do. So the good guys, the allies, you're trying to get prisoners to escape uh, from the screen. So you're guarding the prisoners that go left to right, and you guard the prisoners 
with a machine gun turret that's at the bottom of the screen. So that is the only thing you could control is this machine gun. And the machine gun has to uh, obliterate all of these different things that are coming at you. Tanks from the right, machine gun trucks from the left, guys above with rocks, and guys putting out landmines. The machine gun is your only line of defense in all of those things. So if you are the allied forces, all you're doing is controlling the machine gun and trying to um, alleviate all these things. Now, if you're the bad guys, if you are working for the dictator, for the dragon, then you can launch all of these different things. Now, it sounds like it would be very uh, complicated, especially on a system that has a Atari-style joystick with only one fire button. But actually, the controls are pretty ingenious. If you, Because the four things that you can launch take place either on the top of the screen, the bottom of the screen, the left of the screen, or the right of the screen. So if you press the button and put the joystick to the right, it will launch the tank from the right-hand side of the screen. If you press the button to the left, it will launch the machine gun truck, that comes from the left. If you press the button uh, and press up, then the guy on the top of the wall uh, will appear with the boulder and you can move him left and right until you press the fire button and he will, you have to time it and he will throw the, the boulder down and try to crush uh, one of the escaping uh, people. And if you pull the button down, now you control the uh, landmine guy and you move the landmine back and forth. And when you press the fire button, the little trap door opens and he pops out and puts a mine. Um, now on the background, there are three doors. Now the doors don't function, um, but it divides the screen into a visual area. And the reason that's important is because um, your player on the left, as the characters are your, um, the hostages are moving. When they're on the left-hand side, you can't launch any left-hand attacks until they reach the first door. So when a guy appears on the screen, you can't immediately shoot him with the machine gun truck because that it would be impossible to defend. And so as he makes his way across the screen, when he reaches the third door, which is on the far right, you can't launch any attacks from the right-hand side. So you can't launch a tank at the very last second. So during those parts of the prisoner's journey, you have to only throw rocks at them or try to plant uh, a landmine. This game is really, really fun. I really enjoy this mini game, uh, you know, as much as the first one, if not more than the first one. Um, the, the, the goal, if you are uh, the bad guy, well, the trick is to try to distract someone. So you launch, let's say, a tank from the right, and the machine gun has to turn all the way to the right-hand side. Well, once it's all the way at the right, now's a good time to strike from the left or to set your boulder guy uh, you know, up, up in position to get ready to drop a boulder on somebody. Um, the computer is very hard to, to fool. And, uh, as far as the tanks and the machine guns and the rock throwers and the landmines, those are all unlimited. So as once that has been destroyed, it will regenerate in just a few seconds and you can use that guy again and again and again. So, um, it's kind of mayhem. <laughs> it's kind of fun mayhem. And it's really fun with two people because, um, you know, with one person, no matter which side the computer is, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the AI in this game, but, um, 
you know, if you're playing and you're trying to launch all these things and the computer is just a dead shot with the machine gun. So when you bring out the landmine, he shoots the landmine. When he brings out the, the guy with the boulder, he shoots the guy with the boulder. And it, it's, it's very fast. He takes out your defenses very fast. And it's hard to fool the AI because um, if you launch a tank from the right and a machine gun from the left, the computer knows which one is going to reach the, the guy first and will react accordingly. But when you're playing against another human being, it's easier to fool you. You can launch a tank to the right, and the person playing may go, oh, there's a tank, and move the gun all the way to the right. Well, now's a good time to strike from the left, because they have made a mistake. And the computer just doesn't seem to make a mistake when it comes to prioritizing which uh, thing to defend against first. So either way, one player, two player, lots of fun on this scene. Now we move to the third scene, which is called Escape. Now, Escape is a, what I would call like a vertical shoot 'em up. Uh, not necessarily in, uh, I mean, kind of a raid over Moscow kind of thing, but, um, more like Xevious or something. But actually, what it's, what it's really like is a two dimensional river raid. That's what it really reminds me of the most. Uh, you are flying a helicopter. The good guys are flying helicopters and you have, uh, you have three helicopters, but really you have six helicopters for some reason. So you have three helicopters, but each one can die twice. So you get, um, uh, is that true? I can't remember if they die twice or if they die three times, but, um, but you get a lot of chances, uh, at this. So the first thing you have to do is decide how many of your hostages you're going to put on each helicopter. So, Let's say at this point you have rescued uh, 12 guys. You, you got 12 guys across in the last scene. You got 12 hostages moved. So you could split these up evenly, four, four, and four, if you wanted to, three or three helicopters. And you choose uh, with each helicopter. So as the first helicopter arrives and you say, I want to put on four guys or five or, or 10 of the 12, whatever. Uh, and then once you've once you've decided that, uh, your helicopter takes off and you have to fly over the enemy's base. You're trying to escape. Now, the enemy will have tanks that shoot at you. They will have gun turrets that shoot at you um, and several different defenses. There are also some things you have to navigate in the level itself. For example, you'll see um, like there's a wall. Uh, and this is the part that reminds me of Zaxxon, where you have to fly underneath something or through an opening in the wall. And, and, and some parts there are like two parts of the wall, and there are – think of it like an automatic garage door opener, <laughs> uh, but they're alternating. So one's going up, but one's going down. The other one goes down. The other one goes up. And you have to figure out – you know, get your, your helicopter and fly through the right hole while the, the wall is uh, uh, open, while the gap is open. Now, in your helicopter, you can move your helicopter. Uh, again, you are moving. Uh, I mean, the screen is scrolling from the top down, so it looks like you're flying up uh, on the helicopter. And left and right, move your helicopter left and right. But up and down, control your height. Um, so it, the game uh, – so that's another comparison to Zaxxon, where, where your height is important. So, uh, you know, when you're shooting the gun turrets – you want to be at the right height. When you're going flying underneath things, you have to be uh, at the right height. So again, you have uh, three helicopters, but each helicopter can be blown up once and then you start over on that level. 
Now, as the the bad guys, uh, the dictators, you don't have a lot to do on this level. You do control the tanks. So when a tank appears on the screen, you can move the tank left and right and fire at the helicopter. But the important thing for the dictator side is at the beginning of the level of each helicopter before it launches, uh, there are three skill levels. It's uh, a difficulty level of easy, medium, or hard. And you can choose how difficult it's going to be, but you can only choose each one of those one time for each of the three helicopters. So the first, when the first helicopter launches, the dictator could say, I want this one to be easy. And then the bullets will go slower and there won't be as many enemies and the tanks will move slower. Uh, so then the next time, if that helicopter either crashes and doesn't complete its mission or does make it to the end, uh, then we go to the second helicopter. So now you've already used easy, so you can select medium or hard. And as, you know, obviously as the difficulties uh, move up, things move more quickly. The gun turrets fire more quickly. The tanks move more quickly. There are more bullets uh, on the screen. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't look like, uh, oh gosh, like a shoot 'em up, like, you know, 1942 or, or, or arrow fighters or something like that, where there are just bullets everywhere. I mean, typically there are only a couple of bullets on the screen at a time. It's not overwhelming. Um, but the difficult, you know, part is more difficult than, than easy for sure. So, uh, so that's the strategy and you can, uh, the way I would do it, if I were playing a two player game is I would have, uh, whoever, when, when the allied forces are saying how many people they're putting on the helicopter, I would have player two turn their head so they don't know. And then when it's time for the dictator to choose the difficulty level, I would have player one also turn their head away from the screen. So that makes it a little bit more interesting rather than knowing exactly, uh, because if a guy's going to put all of his hostages on a helicopter. Well, of course you would always pick difficult. So, um, I think it makes it a little bit more fair if you don't see what the other person is choosing on this level. Um, this is not my favorite level. This isn't my favorite style of game. Uh, if you are, you know, if, if a, uh, you know, I mean, I, it's funny because I do like river raid, but, uh, this is less about, uh, having to follow a path and more about trying to avoid bullets from gun turrets and things like that and getting to the end so that you can rescue your hostages. So uh, those are the first three levels. We have uh, uh, the attack, where we drop our soldiers into place. We have rescue, where we try to get our uh, hostages out. And then we have escape, where we've put the hostages on helicopters and we're flying them out of the base. The fourth and final scene is called battle. Now, <laughs> in the manual, what it says is that once all the helicopters have fled, that the dragon tells Stryker, come back and I want to fight you man versus man. And Stryker says, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, from a storyline, does this make any sense? No. I mean, this would be after you have escaped. This would be like, I, I can't even, you know, like Bruce Lee breaking into a place, right? Um I'm thinking of Bruce Lee movies, rescuing hostages and everybody leaving. And then the bad guy going, come back and fight me, man versus man. Once he was already gone and then him going back and saying, sure, why not? Uh, but that's what we have here. And uh, it doesn't matter. 
if it goes with the storyline because it's also another fun uh, mini game. So uh, in the final scene, number four, battle, it is man versus man. On the left-hand side of the screen, we've got JP Striker. And on the right-hand side, we've got the dragon. And this game... Uh, takes place in a cavern. There's a whole backstory in the manual that you can read about how these were the lost caverns of something, something. And this is where these religious rites took place. I mean, it's a crazy backstory. You don't need to know any of that. What I would tell you is this game is a lot like uh, the environmental Discs of Tron video game in which uh, you have two players and they are throwing something at each other and, and trying to hit the other character. Now, as a kid, I always thought that you were throwing throwing knives uh, in this game. The manual very clearly states that these are not throwing knives. They are sharpened, small wooden sticks called puntas, which were used by these ancient people that were in uh, that originally were in these caves, and this was some sort of uh, tradition or ritual or something like that. The only thing I could come up with is that they would have, like, someone would have said throwing knives is too violent or too dangerous. We can't have it in this game. And so instead of saying they're throwing knives, they're throwing puntas. But, I mean, the other three levels have to do with machine guns. Uh, you know, in the first two levels where you're shooting the soldiers, there are bullet holes and, and little splotches where the dead soldiers were and people screaming help and medic and stuff. So it doesn't seem like uh, a third, you know, <laughs> like throwing knives would be too violent for this game. Uh, so I don't really know. I don't understand why they specifically changed that, but they did uh, in this game. The only thing I could come up with is that, you know, the average 10-year-old kid didn't have access to a machine gun turret, and so that wasn't seen as uh, something that would incite a child to action, whereas most kids do have access to a knife and might have tried playing this in real life. Uh, so anyway, we've got, uh, again, I, I'm repeating myself, uh, the player one's on the left, player two's on the right. You can only move up or down. Uh, so you press the joystick up and down and your character moves up or down on the screen, which based on the, the I mean, the way that the character in the game is oriented, the, the actual character is moving to his or her, well, not his or her, his left or right, but on the screen, they are moving up and down. Uh, so further away and closer toward the screen. If you press uh, left or right on the joystick, your player can duck or jump to move over the attacks. I will say that ducking and jumping is very slow and not a best way to defend against a incoming knife or punta. So it's easier to just move that that's a much better defense. Now, uh, this game, <laughs> you have to hit your opponent four times with one of these, uh, uh, puntas before they are dead, at which point they will fall forward off of the wooden do uh, dock ledge and fall to their death into this chasm of what looks like black water below. Uh, again, odd that that uh, a knife would be too violent, but falling to your death 
that's a okay. Uh, so anyway, you got to hit your opponent four times, and you will see the sc- the score on the bottom of the screen. It will count up one, two, three, four. Once you hit them the fourth time, they will die. But the level's not over because it is the best out of nine. So there are nine rounds of this. So you will have to, in theory, you could hit the other guy 36 times. Uh, But uh, this is probably, uh, this is the simplest of the four games. I could almost see this as being just a mini game by itself, just throwing you know, if you added one or two other features to this, this could be a game by itself. Uh, it's a lot of fun with two players. Again, you um, also when you throw your uh, little spinning knife punta thing, uh, you, if you press the button by itself, you will throw it straight horizontal, straight from your side of the screen to the other side of the screen. But if you hold up or down, you will throw it uh, a slightly curved one. It will either curve up or it will curve down. Uh, so that is the trick to this level is, um, you know, if you can throw one that's aiming down and then you move your character and they move their character and you can get them to walk into one of your shots as it's flying across the screen, that's really uh, the advantage. Uh, when I streamed this online on my uh, stream channel, uh, the, sec- the second time I played through, I pretty much held even with the dictator on the easiest level. So this is not an impossible level to win. The dictator does make mistakes. The AI does make uh, mistakes on this part, but, uh, um, you know, again, from a story standpoint, it really doesn't make any sense, but from a gameplay, it's a lot of fun. It's literally just throwing knives at another guy while they're throwing knives at you. So, um, not a lot to it, but somehow it's very entertaining. The simplicity of this fourth scene, I think, kind of sums up the difference between the original Beachhead game and this game, Beachhead 2. The original Beachhead, to me, some of the games are pretty confusing. Some of them, even the ones that aren't confusing, are difficult to play. But Beachhead 2 is very arcade-like. All of these mini-games are very easy to play with no background information and no documentation. You can pick up a joystick, figure out what's going on, and jump right into the play. And that was important in the uh, the two-player mode uh, as a person versus person, as it says, because when you played two-player mode, it was very likely that only one of you owned the game. The other one would be a friend that was coming over to your house to play a game. So there were a lot of games, I'm thinking of some of the Epics games like Summer Games, Summer Games 2, where you could play multiple people, but some of the events were so complicated that only the guy who had read the manual really was going to be able to score, and they would have a you know big advantage in those games. So this is one where a friend could come over, you could both pick up a joystick and, and have uh, fun playing this. I think the head-to-head option gives this game a lot of replay. I think the fact that in one player you can play as either the Allied Forces or as the Dictator gives this game a lot of replay value. Uh, and it's also surprisingly fun against the computer. Now there are at the beginning of the game, there are three different difficulty levels, the easy, medium, and hard, and they're pretty well advertised. I would say once you've played the game a few times, the easy level is winnable or the easy difficulty setting uh, is usually winnable. And the medium one is medium and the difficult one is really hard. So uh, they did a really good job in scaling the AI 
in this game and making it fun to where you don't just get super frustrated and stop playing on the easy level. On the easy level, you could see, oh, if I did this differently or if I were a little better at this, that there would be a way to win the game. One of the interesting things I found out about this game is that Beachhead 1, which was the first big game released by Access Software, uh, was a huge success. People loved this World War II theme, and uh, it was the right age group, and so it sold really well. Now, the second game that they released in this type of genre was uh, Raid Over Moscow. That was the second game. And there was a lot of controversy at the time, and I didn't remember this, but apparently because it wasn't a fictitious enemy, you know, it was actually a a real place, right? It was it was Moscow. And so especially in the UK on the US gold release, um it it was a little bit controversial, but they turned that controversy into sales. They did a good job of doing that. Um with Beachhead 2, even though it got really good reviews, I think overall it didn't sell as well because people thought, oh, it's just going to be like the original Beachhead. And um, for whatever reason, it just didn't sell that well. And so um, even though I think it's a more fun game than the original Beachhead, because the sales weren't there, this really convinced Access Software, and we're talking Bruce and his brother and um, and Chris, the CFO, to think about other directions to go, and that is what led them into dropping the World War II-style games and moving into the sports-style uh, games. So if Beachhead 2 had sold better, we may have not ever got leaderboard golf or, or Lynx. So kind of interesting. And man, oh man, all this talk about war has really made me hungry. So let's take a break from talking about this game and head on over to the castle for today's Talking Snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking Snack. Now, we've stepped outside of the dining hall. Uh, I've invited some of my good friends over. We've got Zyke, we've got Robbie Harris, and we've got Paradroid here joining me today. Uh, I know I kind of tricked them a little bit. I told them to come on over, and I was going to have a special feast prepared, and I do. Uh, but unknown to them, I have spent the past two weeks building a series of trenches and foxholes around the Spray Castle. So uh, I've also ordered a large bucket of MREs right from Amazon. Apparently, Based on the instructions here, all I have to do is add water, and we will have an instant meal. Now, unfortunately, while digging the trench, I seem to have cut a water line, and we actually have no water, uh, running water down here in the foxhole. So now I am going to use the bucket that the MREs came in to walk over to the Sprite Castle moat and get some water. I'm sure all this will end up being sanitary and the guys will uh, love this meal when I get it done. But while I'm headed over to the moat, I want to tell you about my friend Josh. Uh, Josh passed away back in January, but I did not find out this news until uh, earlier this month. Josh and I were friends in high school. He was one of those guys that uh, just kind of showed up, and none of my friends or I really remember who met Josh first. 
it was one of those situations where all of a sudden Josh was in our circle of friends and everyone seemed to have met him through some different, uh, different way. My buddy Jeff met Josh at Votech while they were doing electrical repair classes. And, and my buddy Andy met Josh because they were working together at Pizza Hut. And I had met Josh through a common friend because we both liked computers and the Commodore 64 and car stereos. Uh, Josh always told people that he drove a vet, which was true. It was a chevette, <laughs> a really awful chevette uh, with a car stereo that he had built himself uh, with speakers and a box and all these parts that he had bought uh, from Radio Shack. If you've heard me talk on other podcasts about the Nasty Pirates, Josh was one of the official first, uh, there were five of us that were the Nasty Pirates. The Nasty Pirates was a name I came up with for my close friends and I, and the thing we had in common was we all had CB radios in our car uh, my senior year because we had to open campus for lunch. And so when the, the lunch bell rang, we would all run to our cars and then we would coordinate over CB radio, which was not common in 19, uh, 1991. <laughs> Most people did not have CB radios in their cars, but we did. And we would talk to each other. Of course, this predates cell phones. And we would coordinate where we were going to go to lunch. So Josh was, uh, there were five of us that were the Nasty Pirates, and Josh was uh, one of the five. In fact, uh, in the movie room that I built two houses ago, and then in the movie room in my last house, in the movie room that we have here in my current house, all those have had five chairs. And so Josh is uh, the fifth reason why I have uh, uh, five chairs. Josh was uh, super into uh, Star Trek and car stereos and technology. But again, he had a Commodore 128 when I met him. So uh, we did have that in common. And uh, Josh was, uh, I think at the time, you know, people would call him a spaz. I don't know that people, I don't know if that's a common term anymore. Uh, he was very skittish. Uh, he would laugh. And sometimes he would laugh to a point where, um, uh, even if what he was laughing at wasn't funny, you would laugh because you would just laugh at Josh's laugh. Uh, he was uh, uh, super crazy. One of the the uh, stories that I told recently, if if you haven't seen, uh, Rando Rob was that um, he had Dr. Sabatso, I think is what it was called. And it was a program that came with the sound blaster. It was a talking parrot. And uh, you would talk into a microphone. This was a very, very early PC program. And like I said, it came free with the sound card. Uh, and you would say something and, and it would speed up your text and just play it back to you like a parrot was saying it. So if you said hello, it would say hello. <laughs> and if you said, what are you doing? It would say, what are you doing? <laughs> like that. But it was just your voice sped up. Um, but Josh would, would show us that. And then he would start laughing. And then the parrot would start repeating Josh's laugh, but faster, which would make Josh laugh even more. And the parrot would laugh. And so then eventually you would be laughing at Josh laughing at this parrot laughing <laughs> at himself it was uh, uh a quite uh, a ridiculous little thing but um uh josh was one of the people who i mean josh was the guy who taught me how to assemble pcs and how to uh repair pcs and um you know the things that he taught me about that he also taught me about networking network cards and how to load network drivers and he taught me this so that we could set up doom uh lands and have land parties 
And all those things that he taught me literally uh, allowed me to get the job that I still have today, you know, doing IT stuff. And, and I got I got my foot in the door because I knew how to work on computers and all that stuff that I knew how to do uh, came from Josh. Um, but, I, you know, going back to Josh's sense of humor and, and the things that would make him laugh, I have a very specific memory of playing Beachhead 2 with Josh. And uh, every time that the little soldiers would get shot and say medic, that he would just laugh and do his little skittish thing. And he'd be like, medic, (laughs) he would start doing that. And so even though the game itself wasn't that funny, you would find yourself laughing because Josh found it uh, so funny. And so uh, when I think about Josh and the Commodore, I think about Beachhead 2. And and it was impossible to play Beachhead 2 without thinking of my buddy Josh. So Josh... Um, if there's a, uh, if there are podcasts, wherever you are today, I hope you're listening. I hope you know that, uh, the nasty pirates, uh, definitely mourn your loss. I also, while I'm scooping up this bucket here for some water for these MREs, this is so rude of me. My guests are sitting over there with powder, buckets of powder, and I've, I've timed this poorly. I want to talk for 30 seconds about Sarah Jane Avery. Now, if you don't know who Sarah Jane Avery is, she is a independent developer of 8-bit and 16-bit games. She has released many games over the past several years for the Commodore 64. Most of them have been shoot 'em up style games. She released the game Neutron and then re-released it around Christmas time and re-skinned it as Sandtron. She released Zeta Wing. She released Snow Force, which is an or a Soul Force, which she rebranded as Snow Force again. Uh, and then she released the Briley Witch Chronicles, which I have said on the record, I think is one of the greatest, uh, whatever you want to style this, it's a role-playing game, but it's a tile-based role-playing game similar to Zelda. I think it's one of the best uh, role-playing games on the Commodore 64, period. I think it's it's absolutely amazing. I know she's working on a sequel or was working on a sequel. Um, just... Uh, what an addition to the Commodore 64 library to have somebody in, you know, after tw- the year 2020, 2023, releasing new Commodore 64 games. Uh, she recently released her latest shoot 'em up game, which is Zeta Wing 2. And it was mentioned on Indie Retro News, which is a website I follow. And the comments were just unnecessarily brutal. I thought there were a lot of people that were complaining that the music was not groundbreaking uh, or that the special effects were similar to some of the pre or the previous game, uh, which was Zeta wing. Um, I, I mean, this is no disrespect to my fellow gamers, um, but I feel like we're not reinventing the wheel with shoot 'em ups. Like, I think the shoot 'em ups that we had in the 80s are similar to the ones that are being released today, 40 years later. Uh, you know, every now and then, it, a game may have different type of power-ups or may have different, you know... I mean, of course, they're all different when it comes to enemy attack patterns and, and the things that you're facing and what the graphics look like. But essentially, like, we're not breaking ground here, right? It is a, a genre that has been established uh, for at least 40 years, and... That's what you should expect. So I can't believe 
the negative comments that came out after this. And I became aware of it. I saw some of the comments and then I saw Sarah Jane Avery mention the comments on Twitter and saying she might drop development on the Commodore 64 and move to the Amiga. And by the way, if you're looking for uh, non-cranky gamers, I don't know that the Amiga is the platform to go to. I love the Amiga and I love my Amiga people. But uh, I mean, if, if you think C64 people are critical, Woo, boy, you're going to step into a firestorm there. But I just don't understand biting the hand that feeds you. If you don't think that it's the world's most revolutionary game, which why I don't know why you would think a vertical shoot 'em up in 2023 is going to be groundbreaking. Uh, I think it's going to be a fun game, and it is a fun game, and I think it's going to look good, and it does look good. I mean, it's a game, you know, so I don't understand people going after it's not like everybody is developing new software in 2023 for the Commodore 64. So, um, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what my point is here, but I would just say, you know, if you have a Commodore 64, which if you're commenting on this game, I, I hope that you do. I hope that you're, you're not just randomly taking pot shots at developers. Um, but I would stop before I made a comment, I would stop and say, you know, do I want people releasing new games for the Commodore 64? Because if you do, then maybe you should be a little bit nicer to them. That's all I'm going to say. All right, I've got my water bucket here full of water. I'm on my way back. And while I'm going back, I just want to mention congratulations to my daughter who graduated high school this week. Last night, we attended graduation. Uh, graduation was outdoors. That is the only way that uh, her graduating class of 660 people could have enough space where everyone could invite up to 10 family members. So we had it outdoors. It was a little cold. It was a little windy. There were some uh, light sprinklings of rain just ever so slightly. And the whole time people had one eye on the black clouds that were rolling above, but uh, almost like a movie, they announced everyone had graduated. All the kids moved their tassel from one side of their hat board to the other and it seemed like the clouds kind of parted and there was sunshine. It was a very uh, uh, movie-type moment. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I can't... Uh, I just remember being that age and I remember thinking, you know, feeling a little lost, but also feeling like there's a big old world out there. So uh, I hope that my daughter feels that same way. I'm sure she feels a little lost, but I hope she knows that there's the big giant world out there. So, uh, if you, uh, I, I don't, I have too many listeners that are probably graduating this year, but if you have a, a child or maybe even a grandchild that's graduating this year, then congratulations to them. And, uh, I hope that, uh, uh, that they find success and that they find something better to do than building, uh, foxholes and trenches around an imaginary castle and inviting people over for MREs. This was a terrible plan. I don't know why I did this. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, anyway, if you would like a seat in the Sprite Castle dining hall, which we will definitely be moving back into on the next episode, or if you just want to help pick what games or support my podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. While everybody is finishing these MREs, let's get back to finishing up talking about this episode's game. 
despite apparently low sales, the reviews of Beachhead 2 were amazingly positive. Uh, Lemon64 currently has an aggregate view of 8.24 out of 10 points. Zap gave it 94 out of 100 points. Computer and Video Game Magazine gave it 85%, and Commodore User gave it 80%. 80% almost sounds low compared to these other scores, but that's 8 out of 10. That's pretty good. Uh, I believe Zap summed it up by saying Beachhead 2 is simply superb and boasts some lovely graphics and a huge range of sampled voices. The gameplay is very bloody, but extremely enjoyable. And at the price, it is a steal. Uh, Ahoy magazine, which did not give it a score, but gave it a very positive review, summed it up by saying, quote, one of the best head-to-head games for the Commodore 64 and the computer makes a powerful solitaire opponent. So again, uh, it's good in one player or good in head-to-head. Now, I was a little baffled when I started looking at the reviews and the scores. They were not as high as what I thought they would be, but what I discovered was that was an average of the score across all the systems this game was released on. So other than the Commodore 64, Beachhead 2 also appeared on the ZX Spectrum, the Amstrad CPC, the Apple II, and the Atari 8-bit. Now, all these versions look different, and it is largely regarded, and this is just not my personal opinion, that the Commodore 64 version is the best. The animation of the characters running is the best, and the digitized speech samples, which really put this game over the top, only appear uh, on this version. When I looked at reviews from other systems, the Sinclair user gave it a 60% on their system. Uh, Computer Gamer, uh, which is a review of the Amstrad CPC version, gave it 35%. And Amtix, which is another Amstrad CPC review, gave it 10% out of 100. So this game did not get uh, as high reviews on other systems. This game was not ported uh, or remade, but it was somewhat reborn into an arcade game and a Windows game called Beachhead 2000. Now, I have actually played this arcade game, and it is a uh, it's an arcade game, but almost like a virtual reality game. There is a helmet that you put on your head that you could turn around and you have to turn your head around. Like physically you have to spin around in space and shoot incoming, uh, uh, attacks. So it has very little to do with the original beachhead, except for the fact that it's a world war two style game. Uh, but beachhead two was, or beachhead 2000, excuse me, was also released on windows. And then there were a series of sequels. There's beachhead 2002. There was beachhead, uh, desert war. And then there were several spinoff games after that. So, uh, there are some newer windows games. And again, the beachhead 2000 was also an arcade game, uh, but they're really only related to the original beachhead and beachhead two in name alone. Now, if you want to own a copy of beachhead two, an original copy, uh, on the Commodore 64, I think you're in luck. Um, the copies that I found on eBay were selling for 10 to $20. Uh, 
and those included everything from just the uh, cassette version and a loose floppy to a complete inbox copy of the game. So um, plenty to choose from on eBay if you want to own an original copy of this game. And now let's take a moment to talk about my personal memories of Beachhead 2. As a kid, I did not have a real connection with World War II. I didn't uh, have a grandpa that was in World War II or anyone that was around me that was in World War II. So I didn't have that connection. I didn't watch a lot of World War II movies. It just wasn't something that, as a kid, I got into personally. I would say if I had any connection, it would have been more – I think I'm more of the, the Vietnam War generation like Rambo and and things like that. So that would be, as far as games go, something that I would relate to more. Uh, So I didn't play a lot of tank strategy type games or World War II strategy games. It just wasn't something that really drew me in. But the original Beachhead followed by uh, Raid Over Moscow, which we talked about briefly, and then this game, Beachhead 2. Uh, you didn't have to love World War II to enjoy these games, especially Beachhead 2. It's, it's such an arcade-style minigame you know, type game that it doesn't really matter if it was World War II or, I mean, the fact that it's a tank rolling on, it could be anything. The guy's, you know, it's a helicopter dropping soldiers, but it could be a UFO or something. There's just nothing in the actual gameplay itself that really makes this a World War II style game. Not that I wouldn't play it if I knew that it was, but it just, that's not required to enjoy the game. Now, when you, I remember on the Commodore 64 having different games that I would play if I was at home by myself you would want to play a one-player game. Or, you know, if you had a friend come over, you might want to play a game that would have one players where they took turns. But then the whole time, you know, that one person's playing, the other person's watching. But, you know, the uh, the best things were games where players could play against each other. You know, fighting games, uh, things like that where, one, where both people could play. Or even games like... You know, Bard's Tale, Jeff and I played where we would both play at the same time and and make decisions, uh, things like that. So there was always, um, you know, a desire to have those games where people could play head to head when your buddy came over and and you would sit down and you play. Um, And I think, you know, systems like the Atari 2600, the Intellivision, there were a lot of games that were head to head style games. And then when you moved into computers, a lot of games were just one player at a time. Uh, and, and, you know, in early systems like the Apple two and the early uh, PC junior or PC, they really only facilitated one joystick. So there were a lot of games that just supported one person. The Commodore had those two joystick ports. So games that allowed you to play two, two people at the same time, um, were really enjoyable. So you had a friend come over and you would play it. So I definitely remember playing beachhead Two. As I mentioned with my buddy Josh, I know I played it uh, with Jeff, and I know I played it with my buddy Andy uh, over at his house. I know Andy had Beachhead and Beachhead 2. So these were all fun-style games that you could play with another person. And so I do definitely remember, um, you know, playing this game quite a bit and just having a good time with my friends. 
For graphics, I'm going to give Beachhead 2 four out of five puntas. The graphics obviously could be a little bit better, but the smooth animations and, and the different types of terrain and the varying and the details of everything really make it above average. For music, I can really only give it two out of five puntas. There's a opening song at the beginning, but most of the levels, none of the levels actually have background music. For sound effects, I will also give this four out of five puntas. You have uh, everything in the game has sound. The helicopters have sound. The machine guns have sound. And you have the digitized speech, which really elevates this game. Overall gameplay, I will give Beachhead 2 four out of five puntas. It has a fun story. It's easy to play. It has entertaining mini games, and it is fun for either one person or two players at the same time. Thanks again for tuning in to Sprite Castle. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on my podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. This episode of Sprite Castle was made possible by Patreon supporters like Daniel Jaleppa, David Modelak, and Gabe DeGenero. If you would like to help pick games to be featured on future episodes of Sprite Castle, read behind-the-scenes blog posts, watch weekly videos, get access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and receive other additional perks, support tier start at just $2 a month. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Sprite Castle is available on all major podcast providers, including the official Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. More details about all my shows are available at podcast.robohara.com. News and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now don't poke your eye out with a sharp punta, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. <laughs>